0: Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number four. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode brings Mike Avery's conversation with Father Louis T. Brisati. Father Lou is an associate professor of religious and theological studies at St. Edward's University in Austin, Texas, where he was previously the Dean of the School of Humanities. In today's episode, Father Lou talks about how he prepares to preach, what he thinks makes a good priest life as a theologian and dean at a university, and his new role running the Center for Religion and Culture. Thank you for listening. Please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog. And also be sure to check out the blog this week. We've had several excellent posts from Daily Theology contributors Christine McCarthy, Meg Stapleton-Smith, and Leo Gardado, who were in El Salvador for the beatification of Oscar Romero, And we have several more posts coming up this week as the College Theology Society kicks off its annual convention. So stay tuned, and thank you for listening.
1: All right, welcome to Daily Theology Podcast. Today, our guest is Father Lou Brusati. He is a professor of religious studies and theological studies and head of the Center for Religion and Culture. We're here at St. Edward's University in Austin, Texas my alma mater. Uh, great to be back in Austin. Father, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Happy to be with you.
1: Um, before getting into any major theological discussions and whatnot, do you listen to any podcasts yourself?
2: I have not listened to many podcasts at all. So,
1: not, is, not, not one or any, or any like news or anything uh, like that.
2: News occasionally, mostly
1: no. Okay. Well, this will be, you should check out our podcast, Daily Theology. Um, I will do that now Now that I'm going to be on it. <laughs> All right. So you'll get, we'll be the first one for you. Uh, so one of the things that we would like to focus on is the vocation and craft, of uh, professors as well as ministers. So one of the leading questions I would like to ask you is what led you to the priesthood? You
2: know, when I was a kid, I was very interested in priesthood. And I think that was back in the 50s the mid to late 50s when I was young and I think initially I was probably attracted more to the kind of smells and bells sort of stuff of Roman Catholicism. As I I grew into high school I went to uh, St. Louis Preparatory Seminary in St. Louis which is the high school seminary for the diocese. Uh, That was back in the days when there were 500 students. It was a day school. Pretty much one of the uh, top school's in the St. Louis area, I gradu- started with about uh, 180, graduated with around 75. and um, then I went to uh, Cardinal Glennon College, which is the diocesan College seminary for two years, and after that decided I didn't like seminaries.:
1: <laughs> so. so you were part of the generation that went straight to seminary right after high school.
2: Well, into seminary at high school.
1: So Okay, so there, there you go. When did you choose to, to do a seminary in high school? Is that your choice, or is that your parents? Or
2: No, that was my choice, yeah. My father really wanted me to go to what at the time was called Christian Brothers College. It was a preparatory school. Uh, they wore military uniforms, and I really didn't want to wear a military uniform, so I uh, I ended up at the seminary.
1: And so two years into... Your experience I guess in college, in college seminary what what led you to to move away from that?
2: I just found it a very oppressive maybe a little strong, uh, certainly not a very not a place really conducive to kind of growing up as a person so I left after two years and went to um, University of Missouri at columbia
1: and that's where Dr. Dr. Shirley went so that's what I was thinking yes. about like oh. Missouri. Why, uh, why Missouri and not other, any other university?
2: Largely because I was uh, from St. Louis, had always followed the uh, Mizzou Tigers, and wanted to get far enough away from home to be away, and close enough to be relatively close. It's 120 miles.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So what eventually led you back to the priesthood?
2: When I got to be a senior in college, I just started thinking about it again, and so I had been accepted into graduate school at Mizzou, my undergraduate degree is sociology. And I started talking to the folks at the seminary and I was, you know, they were, they were going to take me back basically without my having a degree in philosophy, which at the time was what seminarians got, <laughs> uh, which made me very happy because I really did not like to study philosophy that much. I don't know if it was philosophy or if it was the people that were teaching it at the time. The
1: little seminary. column A, little column B.
2: Little little both. So I went back to Kenrick, um, which is the major seminary for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. And I was there for two years. And in the course of that two years had somewhat come to the conclusion that I wanted I was interested in teaching. At the time there weren't a lot of opportunities uh, to teach as a diocesan priest unless it was high school. So I, you know, the the seminary was staffed by Vincentians, uh, the congregation of the mission. And I got interested in them and just made some comment at the time to my spiritual director by saying, uh, well, I'm not sure where I'm going to be next year. I don't think I'm going to be here, not really knowing where I wanted to go. And he said, well, have you ever thought about joining the Vincentians? And I said, no, not really. And he said, I think you might think about it. So I did. I was also looking at the Paulists, Oh, and um, because I knew the Vincentians, they had taught me in high school and they were teaching in the seminary, it seemed like a good fit. So I joined, I joined them, uh, went out to uh, Santa Barbara, where they had their novitiate. I spent six months there and then went uh, to Chicago to what at the time was called DeAndreas Institute of Theology, which was the Vincentian um, graduate program. Uh, located in lovely Lamont, Illinois.
1: Well, explain uh, that area. I, I mean, I'm living in Chicago right now, but so I'm not, I don't know if I've ever been there.
2: You'd remember it if you had been. Lamont, Illinois is about 35 miles straight west of Chicago on um, what is what's the interstate there?
1: The, the I, I don't have a car, so I don't. Because I don't it's the North and
2: South Interstate. Okay. I want to say 35, but that's the one that's here <laughs> right. in Boston. Uh, so it was kind of on in the boonies. Uh, it was it was sort of a Vincentian little uh, Disneyland because the school of theology was there and um, the high school seminary was there. It's a big piece of ground, uh, and there was also um, an estate that was Arthur J. Schmidt, who had given a lot of money to DePaul, and so they had um, uh, the Schmidt estate had given uh, the congregation all of that land. So. It was out in the middle of nowhere. Now it's pretty much in the middle of uh, the suburbs. Gotcha.
1: What charisms of the Vincentians do you feel have molded you into the priest you are today?
2: I think a lot of it has to do with the teaching charism. Uh, the Vincentians were known in the United States at the time as uh, seminary educators. And so I was interested in in that, that work. Um, I think the other thing that uh, kind of I, mean, I was always attracted to saint vincent to paul uh, just in terms of what what he was able to do with his life in france and the service to the poor was was a piece of that so the formation of the clergy and uh, identification with the uh, you know now what we call the option for the poor, for the poor. Th- those two things were, were kind of central
1: how do you, you, you work at a school that was formed by Holy Cross? How do you differ between the two? Uh, Holy Cross is also big on teaching uh, in service, especially to the poor as well. Um, how do you differentiate the two?
2: They're very similar in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't realize until I had gotten here that Basil Moreau, who founded the Congregation of Holy Cross, actually based his rule off of the common rule of St. Vincent. Uh, he was a hundred years after Saint Vincent, uh, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities in terms of uh, charism, uh, Although I, the, the congregation of Holy Cross was never involved, I don't think in a significant amount of seminary work as the Vincentians had been. Um,
1: so the Vincentians have a, a very dis, uh, almost in a way a distinct seminary or a seminary type of approach that that is powerful. Is at,
2: at the time, uh, most of, if well, close to all of the Vincentians in the United States now are not doing uh, seminary work. I mean, there was a time when the community had seminaries all over the country. Uh, now people are working in, there are a number of folks that are working in the seminary out in uh, California, some folks in the East Coast. Uh, and then there's there, there's a dabble of people who are involved in seminaries here and there.
1: So, in your opinion, uh, you've been a priest for a good while. Uh, yes, a very m- good while. <laughs> I've tried to put that lightly. <laughs> it's going uh, to be,
2: well, it's it's going to be 40 years, 40 years in uh, November.
1: Congratulations. That's Thanks. good. What what makes a good priest?
2: What makes a good priest? That's a good question. Um, I, I think there has to be that sense of a desire to be of service to people, Um combined with a, a, a compassionate approach to uh, to life and to people. Um, you know, I, I, this is just kind of an example. I, when I was teaching in the seminary in theology, I was doing um, the practicum on uh, hearing confessions. And this one student says to me, uh, how many times have you... Uh, withheld absolution wow I thought to myself well now that's an interesting question (laughs) and I said "Uh, never (laughs) he said well aren't you sitting there as judge I said well you know you may be able to look at the sacrament of reconciliation and say there's a certain judgmental piece there the point is to be compassionate and forgiving the way Jesus is compassionate and forgiving my assumption is that when somebody comes to confession they have a disposition that says they, they truly are sorry and want to be forgiven. So that kind of compassion I think is very is very critical. And I do think a desire to, you know, to be with people and to serve people. I do think being a good preacher is helpful. <laughs> I,
1: I think i I asked the question just because I've heard so many things about oh, the priest's priest at my parish is not into it, the homily's boring or so I'm wondering like the with the question itself what do priests actually think a good priest is or or like that I, that's kind of a fascinating thing because I've heard lay like, people will have different opinions on it.
2: I you know I really do think that since presiding at the Eucharist is the place where most people have contact with the priest right that that that's a crit, that's critical it's very critical to do it to do it well to engage people you know in some ways there's a certain there's a certain dramatic effect about presiding at the Eucharist. I mean, you need to look at people, you need to engage people, you need to use uh, gestures that are going to be inviting. So I think that's really important. You know, my I used to tell students that if you're if you're presiding at the Eucharist well and you're preaching well, you are impacting possibly four, five, six thousand people on a weekend, and that that's significant. And what you want to be able to do, at least what I try to do, is to to give people a homily so that come Wednesday they'll be able to say, oh, I remember what he said and that's going to help me be a better person today.
1: What's your process for a homily? Like, how do you do you do you research a lot? Do you just sit down for an hour and then think the way you can? What's your process?
2: It's changed over the years and i think part of the change is i don't have to do i don't have to do the, the amount of background work that i did initially in terms of exegesis uh, since it's a 3 year cycle you know uh, what i do attempt to do every year is to get a different book a different commentary on the gospel for that year to get a, a more recent commentary and just kind of continue to, to check through things i think look you know looking at the scriptures and uh, you know i always the the first reading generally is chosen to give some insight into the gospel reading. So those are the two that kind of look at. So if you look at the, uh, you know, the Hebrew scripture reading or the Acts of the Apostles like we're into now for Easter, that's going to give some insight into what the gospel message is. I try to get it down to a sentence, that this is, this is the one sentence. This is what I really want to get across. And then begin to work from there. I do like to make use just of the scripture that's there for the day, and not make reference to.
1: You don't like to go into the unknown of all the, kinds the of corners. The unknown,
2: <laughs> yeah. It's like okay, well, today this is the gospel today, but you know this happened over in John, and you know, yeah, it's it's like well, I like to stay with the readings for the day. I like to to be able to quote from them in the context of the homily. Lately, I've been attempting to include some Pope Francis stuff
1: that seems to be in vogue
2: he, it's very in vogue and he's certainly um, he certainly crafts stuff in a way that that parallels the kinds of things that that are going on in the scriptures so basically put all that together what do I want to say how do I want to say it I try to keep my homilies to about 800 words okay' um,
1: how, and how, how long is that?
2: That's generally about seven or eight
1: minutes. What advice would you give to young seminarians or even uh, newly ordained priests who are doing homilies? What, what advice would you give them?
2: I would say a couple of things. Number one, don't preach yourself. People could generally care less
1: about... Is that is it your experience, like their experience? Yeah. of what, Okay. Uh,
2: don't preach yourself. Don't attempt to say everything you've ever thought of in one homily. You've got the rest of your life to, to preach. So keep focused. Have a beginning and have an ending. And, and for the people, I, I tend to work off of a text. But for people that, that don't do that, I encourage them to have a beginning and an end. That way they can land with an ending rather than what some people do is they come in for a landing, they circle a bit, they take off again, and you get another three minutes.
1: <laughs> uh, I never thought about it in terms of how you're gonna end. That's okay. That yeah. makes sense a lot.
2: And I and I do encourage I I certainly try to do this, encourage people to include some reference to the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So it's like the liturgy of the word moves into the liturgy of the ah. Eucharist and um, you know, the two are related.
1: So you you are a priest, uh, but you also you've been a dean for many many years. Could you explain what's the vocation of a dean of of a school? That's what I found that I didn't know I didn't have an answer for it. You're like what is it like? Because I obviously have no experience in being a dean or why uh, maybe a priest would go into that role unless told to. So I would love to have some insight into the vocation of, of a dean.
2: Okay. It goes back early on, uh, not long after I was ordained and went to um, St. Thomas School of Theology in Denver. I started doing administration fairly early in my teaching career and in ministry. So I discovered, I think, that I was not, I was actually pretty good at it, uh, pretty good at being uh, an administrator. When, when I had finally moved out of the seminary environment and was at DePaul University on the religious studies faculty, it was clear to me that it was going to take a long time to move up in that structure given the complexity of it. I happened to be walking through uh, the Vincentian community room at the time, picked up a copy of the Chronicle of Education on the way to uh, the gym and I was flipping through and all of a sudden I see this Advertisement for Dean of the School of Theology at the University of Saint Thomas in Houston, and I looked at I looked at the uh, qualifications and I thought to myself, Hmm, I think I've done just about all of this except fundraising.
1: <laughs> That's a big one.
2: <laughs> so I thought to myself, I'm going to um, I'm going to send in a letter and see what happens, and I did, and they got interested. And I said to the provincial at the time who owed me a few favors. I said, ah. "I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think?" He said, "Well, you know, see what, see what happens." So I go down, I interview, and um, I'm thinking to myself while I'm standing outside a restaurant, I, I don't really like Houston. <laughs> I'd only been there welcome about, to the club. I'd only been there about 12 hours. Uh, they got very interested, and uh, so I, I took the job. And uh, that was good preparation. I was dean there for seven years. It was good preparation for coming to uh, St. Edward's. I was back in the seminary environment, although it was the, the School of Theology was larger than the seminary. So in the course of uh, my seven years there, we pretty much revised every program, significantly increased enrollment with the lay people, got very much involved in the formation of permanent deacons, built a building, and did some fundraising. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I, seven years, it's, uh, I think, I, I don't know how old I was at the time, maybe 52, I Thought I could probably stay here for a long time and, and sort of coast. However, I saw an advertisement for uh, the dean of the School of Humanities at St. Edward's and I was always kind of attracted to the city of Austin. Hadn- had only been here for a couple of weddings, I think. So I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send in my stuff. So I sent in my, uh, my application materials and letter. And, again, they got very interested, so I, I came and interviewed and uh, got the job. So I spent ten years as dean of the School of Humanities here at Saint Edward's. Uh, the dean's job here is term limited, three three-year terms. So I did the nine years and then uh, did an additional year before before uh, getting out of the position. So what did deans do, and what was attractive to me about
1: it? It, it sounded that deans are an. Uh, basically uh, are in charge of creating a medium for people to come to a university to have all these programs and to like expand in such a way where you're trying to help people flourish in the environment like you're that, that is a major access point for that do you agree that's
2: that's a very good way to put it I particularly when I got here I think I would describe the most important things that I did as dean as number one Evaluating faculty, supporting them in the promotion and tenure process, hiring faculty. When I came here 13 years ago now, the School of uh, Humanities had about 32 tenure-track faculty. In my 10 years, we doubled that. So I hired you know, 30-plus people and then replaced people who retired. So it's, it's hiring it's evaluating, it's supporting, and really providing, I, I think you said it pretty well, providing the resources that faculty need in order to do their jobs well, which is teach.
1: And which helps, which helps a lot of students that are coming through. We were both here at St. Edward's a, co- uh, a couple of years ago, or even last year. Um, the last couple of years of, of you being dean at St. Ed's was a tough time. We, we lost a lot of professors uh, who had passed away, and you had to do a lot of liturgy. You had to do a lot of, like, uh, ceremonies. You had to do a lot of speeches. As dean as well as, uh, you know, a priest who was practicing within St. Edwards, can you explain just your experience for the last couple years as dean? And, and even you, you lost your assistant. Uh, you, you lost all these tenure faculty. I, I was just, as, just as a personal question, who I was there as well, like, how did you – how did you even get through a homily? How did you even get through it without just breaking down?
2: They, they were very difficult years; uh, they really were. There was there's a lot going on uh, within the university in general, and then within the School of Humanities. And many of many of the deaths. I think it was probably what six or seven people over three years, three or four years. Uh, it started with somebody from the the. Uh, Sarah Medina pate from uh, the theater school, who had pancreatic cancer, and then it moved. You know, it moved through. Uh, I think if I can see. Think of the names. Marilyn Schultz, who was in the comm department. Who, was who is
1: a big name a here. Big
2: name and, and a very good friend of mine. She was a neighbor, and uh, I, I always joke about the fact that we we lived four doors from each other, and uh, on the corner there was a small liquor store called Rubens and. <laughs> it was sort of like the cheers of liquor stores in our neighborhood everybody knew everybody else right and uh, the guy who the guy who was the manager butch um i i walked in one day and i i said uh i need a bottle of woodbridge today woodbridge wine and uh, that's what marilyn drank and he said uh, oh you and the wife are gonna have a drink tonight <laughs> i said butch you need to understand marilyn and i were not <laughs> married we just live next to each other and are good friends. Uh, at, at that point, he, I told him, "I said, you know, I'm a priest, so <laughs> you shouldn't <know> do this." Now.
1: <laughs> I, I, that, that, was, that speaks to your relationship, and that must, yeah, that must have been very hard. Too. That was
2: that was a hard one, you know. And then Bill Cahill, who was VP for Technology, and then you know it kind of goes through uh, uh, Marcia Kinsey, who had been the uh, former dean. I was, I succeeded her, uh, died of brain cancer, you know, at, and all of these folks at a rather young age, uh, in their 60s. Um, and then, you know, we ended with uh, uh, Harold Becker, who was um, a German prof, who ended up with pancreatic cancer, I think 58.
1: Right. Uh, and, I, have, I was at Shirley's, uh, like, ceremony at St. Ed's, sitting there in, like, very emotional time. Harold Becker's behind me, he's got like two weeks to live, and he's, he was saying like, oh, I remember you in class, I remember how great you did, and I'm like, here is the, you know, my mentor just died, and then one of my great professors who I took in undergrad is talking to me about his death and how he loved me and like and loved me in class. It was the most, the weirdest, hardest moments I've ever been to, it and was, so that the whole community was just yeah. mourning. Do you have any advice for uh, any deans or someone who wants to be a dean? When you go through tough times like this, what, what, what got you through it? Or what is something that maybe was like a saving grace through it all?
2: Um, a couple of things. You know, I think the community is, is pretty much a saving grace. Um, people were very supportive. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a collective mourning experience. Uh, the other thing is, and I, I, you know, I do believe in what the old school stuff talks about is the grace of orders. What's
1: the grace of orders? The, gra- the, grace, of the orders?
2: grace of orders is there. there is a certain grace that comes with holy orders that um, I think there's a place that I go to in moments like that, which makes it okay. So I can hold myself together. Um, and and I I think that's you know the Holy Spirit hanging out. Um, yeah, so that's that's there. Uh, it was so funny Ed Shirley's um, mass and memorial service. Uh, Ed was Ed was cremated, and uh, <clears throat> Beth uh, Bev his wife hadn't really decided uh, where to where to bury him, uh, what to do with the. Cremains, as they're called, so we've got the box there, and
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> just that statement alone, we ha- we have the we box. Have the box there,
2: it's in the front, you know. And uh, I I said to Bev, to Bev afterwards, I said I I know you don't have a place for him yet. Um, I'll be happy to take him home with me for a while until you decide what
1: to right. do. Hey, that that good move, good move.
2: So. I'm I'm standing outside. I've got Ed in my arm with my vestments, and Bishop um, McCarthy, who was the retired bishop of, of Austin, comes by and says, uh, what are you doing with all that stuff? I said, well, Bev doesn't know what to do with Ed, so I'm going to take him home. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the John McCarthy, the bishop, says... Well, you know what he wants to be done. He w- he probably like to be thrown around the around the campus here.
1: Oh, absolutely. I,
2: and I said, well, you know, John, uh, we're not supposed to do that in the Catholic world. We're supposed <laughs> to keep it all intact.
1: And he said, oh, come on. <laughs> 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 Sounds like Bishop McCarthy. So we event-
2: th- we eventually interred him at a little cemetery.
1: Oh yeah. Then and, and Bev showed pictures of that, and it um, it's very powerful where he we buried.
2: And then you know the other really moving one I think was Harold Becker. Um, you know Harold and I were were kind of buddies in some ways. And he was a cool guy. spent a lot of time together, but he was a cool guy. And so he he had been doing freshman studies for years with uh, Mark Cherry, uh, doing a philosophy and literature thing. And uh, so it was clear that that Harold was not going to be able to teach in the fall, and so I. I'd been going over to visit him, so I go over and uh, I said, "Harold, let's let's have a conversation. This is not about dean faculty. This is about me and you." I said, "You know, you're not going to be able to do freshman studies again. I was thinking, since I'm getting out of the dean's job, if uh, if you think it's a good idea, I'll be happy to take your place. Not take your place, teach with with Mark." and uh, he, he, was, he was kind of laying on the couch in this god-awful blue blanket that students had crocheted for him, oh, and gosh. none of the students knew how to crochet. He did it. <laughs> it was quite, quite hilarious. Awesome. <laughs> so anyway, he just gets this big smile on his face, and he says, oh, that would be so wonderful. I can't think of anybody who could control Mark like you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely deep. <laughs> so we've been we've been doing it for three years now. We'll go into our fourth year next year, and uh, we're we're having a good time. But again, the, you know that, that was a that was another tough funeral because um, the students had been so involved, and um, Harold's mother is Bavarian.
1: Yeah, his backstory is quite fascinating. Yeah, it's
2: quite fascinating, and she wanted she wanted to have a beer and pretzels. After the funeral, All right. and I couldn't convince anybody here at St. Ed's to pay for it, so I got some people together and said, "Okay, we'll have, we'll have this, uh, we'll have this reception at school, and then <clears throat> let, let's get everybody to come over to my house and we'll do pretzels and um, beer." So we we get over there, and Kate Rosati, who was my assistant at the time, managed to find a place in in uh, Austin that made genuine Bavarian pretzels. So we had these big pretzels, had about 150 of them, a bunch of people, a lot of beer, and a lot of other stuff. It's a crowd that drinks. And Harold's mother was sitting there looking at these pretzels, and she says to me, these feel simply not due. They are too soft. (laughs) So... I take the pretzels and throw them in the oven <laughs> and crisp them up, and then it was fine. She was she was wow, happy. God, as God. I I feel so small be, after that. To Just be a little I mean,
1: crispy. To... All right, how do I how do I make the situation better? So uh,
2: it, I mean, it was funny because I, you know, the funeral was at like ten o'clock in the morning. We're at my house, maybe one o'clock. It's getting to be three thirty. I have to go off and do a five o'clock mass. So I basically say to people, look. I'm leaving. Uh, you're welcome to stay here as long as you want. So I do mass, come home, and they're all still there. Wow. And in the meantime, they had gone out and bought a good number of other bottles of booze. So I have no idea what the recycling people thought, uh, but it was quite the party.
1: <laughs> so now you teach freshman studies, and, and you're no longer dean, but you're teaching how does it feel to, go to be a full-time professor and, and going back to kind of that world, since you wanted to teach from from a very early age? It's weird.
2: <laughs> uh, and what's weird about it is I don't think I taught, I've taught freshmen probably for 15 or 20 years. And students are different today.
1: What do you mean? <laughs> what's so different about them?
2: Well, everybody's got the mobile devices, and everybody's got their laptops, and everybody's got an attention span of about three minutes. So it, it's, um, it's a challenge to, uh, to kind of come up with examples, because most of the examples that I have uh, predate their existence. <laughs>
1: so uh, how do you get students to engage, maybe in a lecture or uh, d- during class, or even do the reading? Like how do, what, what are some things that you do?
2: i tell stories a lot and i think stories to make the point of what i'm trying to to get across I and mean, we spend a lot of time uh, in freshman studies dealing with kind of life issues so social justice and uh, you know the value of creation all those all those kinds of themes we also do some stuff on death and dying you know mark is an ethicist, so he's got some great stuff on uh you know, sexuality, on smoking, um, all kinds of interesting things. And we're so different. We, we tend to balance each other off. So, you
1: know. So he's doing, you're doing storytelling. What is he doing?
2: He's doing storytelling, too, in a lot of ways. He has a, a wife and three boys. And so there are lots of family stories.
1: He, I've, I've got a dog, so there are oh. lots of dog stories. <laughs> he, when I was in his uh, freshman, I was a freshman in his ethics class. He used to always talk about how kids are evil and like he well because he's trying to get you to think differently as a, a philosopher would try to get you to think and he would always tell you like uh like how his kids would like steal cookies and then lie to him and then like how they're like oh they're not innocent they're lying to me uh he used to always tell us too that like uh just to get us to think like smoking uh kills bad cells uh, kills bad cells as well as good cells why is smoking bad like it can it can kill bad cells in your body like it's it's like wait, you're saying smoking? You can smoke? Like what is? So he he was holy. Totally, like he would stir the pot, in my opinion. Like he would try to really get you to think. Wait, everything I was told is this a lie? Like yeah. is this like a, I, I always found him quite <clears throat> peculiar that way. He
2: did that. He and he continues to do that. We do, <laughs> we do that to each other in freshman studies, uh, in some ways, because he's got the uh, he's got the lecture on smoking and sex.
1: Do you? Do you? <laughs> Which is more Great. dangerous? Which is more dangerous? Smoky I bet he sucks. loves that.
2: Oh, he does. He does. And you know, the students—they just kind of sit there and look at both of us. And I, you know, I think one of the things that we're trying to, to to accomplish is number one to tell them that you can have a good time in school, learning can be fun. So we're trying to create an environment that's successful. We're also trying to create an environment that says you know, two colleagues can disagree on just about everything and still. Be friends and still uh, you respect know, be each other, civil to one another, and respectful.
1: Do, do you find that the newer generation that has a hard time dialoguing? It's more black and white, or is it, it just in your teaching? Do you see people see it's like, no, this is one way. We can't have a conversation about this because in the me- I mean, in my opinion, in the media, they, they, it, it, there's definitely like more tension and trying to determine, oh, like you're on this side or you're on the other side. So it's uh, more polemic.
2: I think there is a, a lot more black and white. Fortunately, and you can testify to this one way or the other. I think, a, 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 I think the education at St. Edwards over the course of the four years, the cumulative effect is to is to really help people see the nuances and the fact that it, the world is not black and white. You know, we can dialogue in a productive kind of way. Hopefully, that happened to you. <laughs>
1: Uh, St. Edward's, they used to always have these really corny slogans that we would make fun of in undergrad. And one of them is learn to think. And actually, I love that now because at at the time, I I took it very literally, like, of course I'm thinking. But now now I'm in my later 20s and I've done certain types of jobs. That's actually a really hard skill to do it right. Mm -hmm. And I think St. Edward's does the, the great thing of, Getting students to say anyone can do this, few can do it well, and we want to show you how to do it the right, right way. Right. Uh, so now I'm looking at my my younger self and be like, "You're an idiot." <laughs> uh, yeah, wisdom comes with age, yeah, uh, slowly but surely. Yeah, so our,
2: our tagline now is "Take on your world." Take on.
1: See, see another one, right? <laughs> like, you, I think there was billboards and stuff that like you could just see. There still
2: are. Now we're, now we're taking on the world. And that you know, that's reflective of the orientation toward global studies. Right. Um,
1: so you started a new center, and this was happening right before I left for Chicago. Tell us a little bit about the creation of that. How, did it, how was it founded? Why did it come about? Anything that you could offer to kind of talk about its origin?
2: We spend a lot of time joking about that. The origin is this. Dr. Martin, who's the president of the university, was very interested in creating what he called signature programs so the the globalization movement at st edwards is now considered a signature program he looked at me when i was getting out of the dean's job and he said you've been talking about religion and culture for a long time why don't you start a center so it 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 was it it was a (laughs) command from on the high in many ways and so I you know been we've been working on it it, it, it it's had a difficult beginning simply because of me. Uh, you know the first year I was still doing a lot of cleanup teen stuff, so writing evaluations. then we moved into a couple of deaths. Uh, then we got into the to the second year and did some grant writing and managed to get some grant money from uh, the Council of Independent Colleges and, and Universities, uh, to do some summer programs on teaching as vocation in the Holy Cross tradition. So largely what I've been doing is attempting to co-sponsor some events. We co-sponsored a event with the Texas Catholic Conference last fall on right-to-life issues and death and dying. We co-sponsored something with a, the Aramos Contemplative Center. I brought in, I forget the guy's name, Got his book somewhere around here. Anyway, on, on contemplation, we're doing a series of conversations, uh, lunchtime conversations. So we just had one on the ground, the common ground among us, which is the Catholic-Muslim dialogue. So we did that, and it, you know, it's basically provide lunch, have a conversation for right. an hour an hour and fifteen minutes. We've done some stuff on um, Pope Francis, kind of the Francis effect. We're gonna do one, we're gonna do one in a couple of weeks. I got the document here. It's um, it's gonna be on uh, Pope Francis as it relates to creation and poverty. And uh, let me see if I can find yeah it's called integral ecology and the horizon of hope concern for the poor and for creation in the ministry of pope francis hmm. it's a talk that a uh, cardinal turkson who is uh, one of the vatican people who deals with environment he's uh, the head of the pontifical council uh, for justice and peace anyway he gives us talk, gave a talk and it's i mean i think it's a pretty brilliant talk so we're gonna we're gonna kind of look at that and uh, then we're going to do some. Uh, we'll do some planning this summer. Uh, we'll continue to do that summer institute for new faculty on uh, teaching as vocation.
1: Teaching as vocation. What's a, uh, what's the ultimate goal? Do you think with the center, uh, what, do you, what do you envision it, it becoming uh, in the future years, as well as as it's becoming now?
2: What I'd like to see happen is is for us to be able to sponsor some, you know, at least maybe one big event a year that would bring people from outside. And then continue to be a resource for people uh, in the university of uh, bringing faculty, staff, and students together for, for conversations about religion and culture. There, there's a lot going on on campus related to that. So it's easy to co-sponsor things with, with like, the Kosmetsky Center for you know Global Initiatives, uh, Campus Ministry, um, McCarthy Lecture yeah, Series. So We have a ton of that. Kind of doing a lot of that. The freshman studies theme next year is going to be social justice, so we're looking at doing a couple things that would would integrate.
1: That sounds integrate fabulous. Stuff. That sounds great.
2: yeah, I, I think it's it's getting moving.
1: Any advice for people who are starting a center from from scratch kind of in a way?
2: Be sure you've got some support, some you know administrative support, mm. make sure there's a budget that's been allocated and um
1: so money resources all the, all, all the very essentials basically. and the
2: other thing is i think I, you know I, and I, i've done some of this i need to do more of it kind of looking what other places are doing I and mean, there, there are a lot of centers for religion and culture faith and culture
1: right. i sent you that on c21 bc it does that where they have a, yeah. a they have a, a bunch of they they have a lot of bc professors who kind of give a talk yeah. uh, and that's kind of a thing but they also do a huge write-up like, every semester of like. The, and have a theme with it, which is I find fascinating, really good. Yeah. So hopefully, you
2: know, we'll be able to move in that kind of direction. I'm not sure how long I'll be doing this. I hate to use the R word.
1: Uh, no <laughs> but, need that. I'd...
2: But uh, you know, I, I've uh, I've got a sabbatical in the spring of 16.
1: All right. The first one in 40 years. You, are, I think, I think you earned it.
2: I think so too. And uh, I used to joke with Sister Donna, who is a VPAA at the time. that
1: I saw her my, this morning.
2: Oh, good. My sabbatical proposal is going to be, I'm going to watch the grass grow. Uh, there's been a change in VPAA, so there's a different kind of, slightly different orientation. So I actually had to write a proposal. Oh,
1: god! <laughs> I, I need a break. That's that's it.
2: <laughs> like, yeah, so I've, I've got a few projects. And, uh, you know, the plan after that is to come back for a couple of years and then look at phased retirement. I'd, I'd like to get out of the job here uh, when I hit 70.
1: it's a good goal. Which uh, is coming faster though. <laughs> <them. laughs> so uh, just to transition to one of our final topics, before we go into the rapid fire questions, what are some influential text or major figures in your life that have really stuck with you? And this could be uh, obviously saints, it could be uh, academic text, it could be popes, it could be any, anything. What, what's What's something that's really stuck with you over the years?
2: I think, you know, from the saint perspective, Vincent de Paul. Vincent de Paul. Despite the fact that I'm now a diocesan priest here in Austin, I continue to be the uh, the Vincentian resource here in town. So every two years, the Seton Family of Hospitals does a, does a pilgrimage to France that I go on as kind of a formation person.
1: And did you have a... Um, Maybe like a priest mentor or even a professor who you looked up to, you saw as someone who you you wanted to emulate, or even like you just you found it, it brought you to it.
2: Um, em- I think so. Uh, when when I was in the seminary, there was a fellow named uh, Bill Hartenbach who was the dean of students and also a historian. I, I think he had a pretty profound influence. Um, I, you know, I always tell people that those of us who who teach who don't know anything about education because we didn't study <laughs> teaching methodology. Right, right. Pedagogy. What we essentially do is try to model ourselves off of the good teachers we had right. and avoid the bad teachers. And you know, he was he was certainly one of the best professors I had, so I've kind of modeled myself to a well, degree
1: after him. What made what made him such a great professor?
2: He was organized, he knew his stuff, he was fair, and he was engaging you know both in and outside the classroom
1: so yeah so he was available and he was yeah. he wasn't just in and out okay so i try to do that
2: you know the other person i think that has uh been a pretty significant influence is uh john the 23rd and the whole vatican ii a good one. movement uh i i continue to teach the vatican ii documents of vatican ii course here and uh you know, it's now it's being it's it's teaching it from the perspective of ancient history. <laughs> Fifty years, <laughs> uh, but it you know it's it's remarkable how some of that stuff is still very important.
1: Do you think uh, we still have a long way to go in terms of implementing? I mean, that's a really but that's like, kind of like a buzzword now is implementing Vatican II. Do you think we have a lot of work to do with that? Do we need to move on, or wh- you, what? Which your stance on that in terms of where the church is headed, or you know, where is it now, or
2: I think we've still got a lot of work to do. Um,
1: any, any place in particular?
2: The liturgy still needs a lot of work. Uh, I think people really, you know, it's almost time to do a renewal of the renewal. Uh, is
1: this I, just like a changing of the words again, or is it like um, do something more? I think that? it's
2: kind of going back to the sources and saying this is what we're doing and this is what we're about, and this is what it means in terms of the world. Uh, can only do so much in a homily. It, it sometimes it just takes more than that.
1: What do you think Vatican II has done uh, that's already been implemented and has done really well that now 50 years later we can look back and see this was the you know the foundation which we have built upon.
2: I think liturgically we've made some significant strides in terms of understanding what church is. I think the ecumenical dialogue has been very important as has the interreligious dialogue when when you think about you know, the first pope to visit the Holy Land was Paul VI. And, you know, fast forwarded to, uh, to Francis last uh, May, I believe. And that, that, that conversation between the Christian world and the Jewish world is, is certainly um, positive. I also think the, you know, the kind of the preferential option for the poor question has taken much more center stage the last, probably the last 25 years. And that's, you know, the church's identification with the poor is is important. I I always like to use a quote from Oscar Romero that he said not too long before he was assassinated about, you know, the the blood of the martyrs uh, intermingled with the blood of priests, catechists, and the people. And this notion of, if they kill me today, I offer my life for the salvation of El Salvador. That, that whole thing and, and now that he's been beatified I think we'll see another resurgence of uh, you know kind of respect for him and gratitude for what he was able to do
1: yeah that's uh, the change from what Francis brought to Romero and just understand that whole story in, in his life I think for a lot that's that's like a living like a, that's a recent saint story that we can look to and it's powerful I think that's a it's definitely one of those stories that everyone talks about now everyone has an understanding of there was something there i I find that a lot of people can can go into that and relate to that so we're gonna do five rapid questions it's kind of like our thing uh with this podcast and so it's less serious it's a little more tongue-in-cheek okay uh so feel free you can answer any way you you want doesn't have to be like a yes or no favorite or a favorite or least favorite liturgical song Least favorite liturgical
2: song is the old "Sons of God."
1: <laughs> how, did, how does that one go? again? what's the "Sons of
2: God"? Here is holy name. Da, 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 what's da, the?
1: What do you just have like a pet peeve against it, or is it? Like... Oh,
2: I think it's silly. <laughs> the melody is silly, and the uh, uh, the words are kind of silly. It was back in the days when when people took contemporary songs and changed the words. You know, like uh,
1: right. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Favorite song? Gee, I don't know.
1: Well, you you can just give us a, a list. I smooth. mean, uh,
2: you know, uh, Eagles' Wings, you know, is always moving in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, of funerals and, and whatnot. Um, the, the I forget the name of it. It's the one on the beatitudes. All oh,
1: right. Yeah, those kinds of things. And
2: then I, you know, I really do like the Taise stuff.
1: Yeah, no, that's great, and that's that's also ecumenical as well. That's, yeah, that's that's really yeah. good. What's your favorite? Uh, your favorite current television show? What do you – I mean, I don't know if you watch a lot of television. Probably
2: more than I
1: ought to be acknowledging. I mean, it's a great time to watch television. That's why I asked this question.
2: I really do like Madam Secretary, (laughs) followed by – what is it, the wife? With the the good wife? The good wife. Okay. The good wife. That's like a nice Sunday night.
1: (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. All right.
2: And I still do go back to the old Golden Girls and the Big Bang Theory
1: well, this is a ple- Okay, this is a plethora of stuff. All right. What profession would you have attempted or would like to attempt if you didn't choose priesthood, academia?
2: I had thought a while about being a lawyer. Uh I don't know where that went. It just sort of disappeared. Well you,
1: you do have the bravado of a dean, so I mean <laughs> as a lawyer you could you could translate. Uh,
2: I you know, I think before I kind of really moved the priesthood thing. I, I was going to pursue the sociology world, mm. and I think probably would have taught.
1: Okay. Fourth question. Uh, what team are you on? Team coffee or team tea?
2: Team coffee. It's
1: coffee for sure. I know you're, I know you're a wine person, so I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you more of that. Okay.
2: Yeah, team coffee. I, and not, not obsessively. I uh, do a cup in the morning. Which, as you'll see with this cup, is only half done because right. it gets cold.
1: Yeah, that's why uh, at Starbucks people ask it to make it super hot so it yeah. stays warm. But, but for me, it, you can't drink it right away because it'll burn. And the uh, only
2: reason I've got Starbucks today is because the Keurig down in the dean's office mm. died
1: yesterday. <sighs>
2: It's the one I bought six <laughs> years ago. So.
1: I like how in this podcast we have oh you know all these deaths of all these great people and then <laughs> then the death of the curate. which is a German machine. Anyways, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Final question: What should the title of your biography be?
2: <laughs> uh, oh my, my goodness! The title of my biography. You know, maybe something like "He Came, He Saw, and He Did Something." <laughs> <laughs> that
1: would be a great title. <laughs> very very tongue in cheek and very practical, right? Like yeah, I did stuff. It's, it's got to be
2: it's got to be funny. You
1: know? It's got to be funny. Okay. Well, Father Lou, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a delight, a pleasure. And I I love being back here. I love seeing everyone around here. So, and you were gracious enough to be on the podcast and I thank you so much for that.
2: Happy to do it. And um, you know, if you turn around, you'll be able to see the portrait of Duncan, my dog.
1: How old is Duncan?
2: Duncan is now seven and a half, and I was there when he was born. Wow. If you, okay. want, you want a cute little story about Duncan. Give, give me a I, I, Duncan. You know, I was going to ask
1: about Duncan, but we're kind of running. Maybe we could fit this in somehow. Bring dunk, it. Duncan
2: is a dachshund. And my neighbor uh, was going was was breeding his miniature dachshund. He said to me, do you want a dog? I've got four committed. I don't know how many puppies Ruby's going to have. So I putzed and putzed and said nothing. I'd never had a dog before and you know, given my lifestyle, wasn't sure if it would be fair to have a dog. So I'm driving in one night and one of the other neighbors is outside saying, Ruby's having her puppies, Ruby's having her puppies. So we're all sitting in the bedroom, Ruby's having her puppies and we're drinking wine and eating cheese and talking and she has four. And then it seemed like she was finished, went into labor a little bit again and out popped Duncan and at that point, I said, I'll take him. I'll take him. The final one. So my mother's comment when I told her I was getting a dog was, oh, <laughs> you have a hard enough time taking care of yourself. How are you going to take care of a dog?
1: <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Mother. Thanks, Mom. She's oh, well, you should have fired back the dogs that help people to live longer. It's a, it's a very healthy thing to have as a dog around that. Given the fact
2: that my dad lived to ninety-seven and my mother's turning ninety this year, I'm not sure I want to live much longer than <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. Uh, but he is—he is a great little, uh, a great little addition.
1: Yeah, that's especially for companionship. I—I I, I grew up with a dog, so I miss—I miss having one. But maybe in the future, it'll be good to have. Yeah. And anyways, thanks again. All right, happy to do it.
0: The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.